Well, thank you to our choir. Such a treat. Such a beautiful song. So um, powerful and delicate at the same time. Um, reminds me of our Savior. So powerful and yet so meek and humble and so gentle with us. I have a message this morning that I think uh, young and old alike will be able to follow. It's the story about the day when Jesus raised two women from the dead. So let's see, which story was that? Well, you probably know it better as the girl who was raised from the dead and the woman who had a bleed for 12 years. But they go together in the same story. And providentially, it's right where we find ourselves in the book of Luke. How appropriate on Resurrection Sunday to hear a story about God raising someone from the dead. So open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 8. Let me read part of the story to you. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old. And she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing in against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage, a bleed, for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding in on you, pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And we'll end the story there. Cliffhanger. Spoiler alert. She doesn't stay dead. The story isn't just about miraculous healings. It's certainly no less than that. Jesus can do things no one else can do. But there's so much more than first meets the eyes. You must see the story through the eyes of a first century Jew, the the manners and customs of the culture, in order to understand what the original intent of the story was, the author's original intent. Intent, not what the story means to me, but what it meant to Luke and what it meant to God, the ultimate author of Scripture. Why did God providentially arrange for Jesus to be at this place, this time in history? 
where a little girl of 12 years old and a woman who had a bleed for 12 years are bookending his life. Whenever you see a bookend like that in Hebrew literature, it's called an inclusio. It's like a sandwich, and the meat's in the middle. 12-year-old girl dying, a woman who's been dying for 12 years, and the one who can give life in the middle. Jesus is returning from crossing the Sea of Galilee where he had just calmed a storm. Remember that? That's pretty amazing. And word's gotten out. And then he cast out a whole legion of demons in the area of Gennesaret. And you bet word got out. By the time he gets back, it says the whole crowd is waiting for him. They want to see what is this Jesus going to do next? And they're pressing in on him. He's uh, surrounded. He, he can't move very far. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody has expectations. Some want to be healed. Some just want to see another miracle. Some just want to be part of the spectacle. Whatever it was they were supposed to be doing during the week. Remember, they don't have washing machines and dishwashers and all the things that make life easier for us or supposed to. They drop everything to come see Jesus and follow him and be around him all day long. And word comes from this man, Jairus. He's the leader of the synagogue. These individual synagogues would um, have a leader, an owner, keep the whole thing running, and invite various rabbis to come and teach on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus had been in Jairus' synagogue before. We read in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus cast a demon out of a man at Jairus' synagogue. And remember, by this time, the religious leaders of the day are not impressed with Jesus. They're jealous of him. They're afraid they're going to lose their power. They accuse him of being immoral, breaking the law, casting out demons on the Sabbath, healing people on the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was a day of rest. And so... Jairus is coming at great personal expense. By now they're plotting to kill Jesus. He could lose his synagogue. He could lose his place at the table. He could lose his position of influence. But when your daughter is dying, your only daughter. There comes a point when we just don't care what society thinks anymore. Amen. And as I was reading the story, it's right, if you have children of your own, to be touched and moved. Put yourselves in the shoes of Jairus, but I violated one of my own hermeneutical principles, one of my own interpretive principles. I've been teaching you guys for weeks. 
don't immediately jump into the story with your modern Western sensibilities. And it escaped my notice for most of my preparation time that the 12 years isn't just a neat parallel that the girl's 12 and the woman's been bleeding for 12 years. 12 is the age when a Jewish child becomes an adult. Just when this girl's real life was starting, she's dying. Boy, that's loaded with spiritual meaning. Just when everyone's thinking she has her whole life ahead of her, she's dying. And for those who aren't aware that they are sin sick and are dead in their trespasses and sins, they think, I've got my whole life ahead of you, of me. And they couldn't be more wrong. And so this little girl who would normally be a picture of life and health and vitality and vigor and optimism and a future, we see a picture of the spiritual condition of the sinner dying. The Bible doesn't specifically teach when the age of accountability is. But we can make a biblical case that young children, when they die, are covered in God's grace and they're taken to heaven. And yet, at some point in our life, we become accountable spiritually to repent of our sins and choose to ask God for our forgiveness and to follow Him. The Bible doesn't give us an exact date. And I think that's the case because we would probably wait until that date and then try to get our kids to give a profession of faith on their 12th birthday. Phew! And possibly people would be walking around believing that they're saved when they really don't have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ at all. So we don't know when the age of accountability is, but certainly the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All must trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And so we could say that this girl represents one who now has moved into the age of accountability and she's dying. She's supposed to be moving forward with her adult life and she is at death's doorstep. And her father is desperate. What a picture of the sinner. Desperate, out of resources, My only hope is this Jesus. I must get to Jesus. I must bring Jesus to my daughter. Parents, are you desperate for your children? Do you bring them to Jesus every day in prayer? Do you bring them to Jesus by the way you live your life? The way you demonstrate your faith? 
I'm not talking about when they're physically ill. Yes, that is indeed right to lift your child up in prayer when they're sick. But do you know your children are sin sick? Bring them to Jesus. Like Jairus, bring your children to Jesus. And Jairus must be frustrated because Jesus can't get to his house because the crowd won't make way. It's a picture of the selfishness of humanity. Self-absorbed. A little girl is dying. Get out of the way. They won't get out of the way. They're pressing in all the more tightly. Everybody wanting a piece of Jesus. Nobody recognizing How serious the hour is. And isn't that a picture of humanity? Going about our business. Oblivious to how desperate the situation really is for us spiritually. One of the people in the crowd is this woman. She's had a bleed a discharge of blood for 12 years. And it says she has spent all her living on physicians. She is broke. She is broker than broke. She has nothing left. No knock on physicians because I see two over there. (laughs) but they would be the first to tell you, go to Jesus. And the whole community would know she has this belief. There's more here than meets the eyes. Our Western eyes, we're so used to somebody like this, the community having compassion on this woman. The way we take care of the sick in our own community here, we bring meals. And if you needed help with your medical bills, we would all pitch in. And we would visit you in the hospital. And we'd pray for you. But this woman was considered unclean by the Levitical law. Let's read that law, Leviticus 15.25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall... Continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. I don't intend to answer the question of why this law, but the short answer is that God was teaching his people in many different ways that he is a holy God and that we are not a holy people and we need to be made clean before we approach a holy God. There was probably also some protection of his people from disease after leaving Egypt and being in the wilderness for 40 years. But if you're living in a legalistic society without compassion, and we saw that the Pharisees and religious leaders had no compassion, they rebuked Jesus for healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, for healing the blind on the Sabbath. These 
people had zero compassion. This woman would have felt ostracized the scorn and shame of people assuming that there must be something wrong with her spiritually in order for God to punish her with this bleed in this way. She was not allowed to come and worship with the assembly. She was not allowed to be intimate with a man. We don't know if she was married. Who would marry someone, though, in this condition? And now she's destitute and impoverished because she has spent every last dime trying to be healed by charlatans. This is truly the picture of the desperate sinner. All I can do is come to Jesus in faith. I have nothing to offer him. I have no money. I have no good works. I can't heal myself. Nobody else can help me. This is the picture of the desperate sinner. We come to Jesus empty-handed and we cling to him. I think uh, maybe not the best translation of the Greek word uh, they use touched. Touched. But the verb has more of an ongoing action, maybe a grabbing hold of, a clinging to. And with the crowd pressing in on Jesus, lots of people were touching him. She grabbed hold of the fringe of his garment. And it says immediately her bleeding ceased. Like Jairus, she's so desperate, she doesn't care what society thinks. This would be unthinkable. For a woman to even touch a man in public, unthinkable. For a woman to cling to a holy man, who is ceremonial, unclean, dishonorable, shameful. And there's still societies today in the Middle East where this would have been punishable in a very severe and public way. Again, this is the picture of the desperate sinner. And as our culture drifts farther and farther away from Christianity... A day is coming when you will have to hear the mockers and the scoffers scorn you for coming to Jesus. Oh, it's okay if you go to church on Sunday now and then. But believe that book. Try to live a moral life. Oh, that's so old-fashioned. That's so oppressive. Well, don't bring your religion into work on Monday. Can God only be worshipped here Sunday morning and not the rest of the week? That's exactly what he rebuked the Pharisees for. Lip service. All for show. Are you desperate like Jarvis or, or Jairus? Are you desperate like this woman? Cling to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And Jesus says, who touched me? And the crowd denies it. And Peter's like, Master, there's people all over. What do you mean, who touched you? 
And he says, I felt power go out of me. And when the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she's been found out. And everybody's looking now. Everybody's waiting to see who Jesus was talking about. And they knew who she was. Many must have known who this woman was and what her problem was. And how scandalous it would have been for her to touch him. Look at Jesus' compassion. He, instead of shaming her publicly, he restores her publicly. She comes and falls down before him and declares in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him. I've had a bleed for 12 years. I've been ceremonially unclean. I know I should not have touched him, but I was desperate. And how she had been healed. Are you tired of the shame and guilt of sin? Walking around knowing you'll never be good enough. Trying to work your way to heaven. Trying to impress God. Trying to do everything right. You can stop. And you can come to Jesus like this woman. And you can be healed immediately. You can come in of here, this place of worship, full of guilt and shame, and leave free and forgiven. And I believe the woman received more than just physical healing that day. Look how specific the language is here. Jesus says to her daughter, that's a title Jesus gives to those in the family of God. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Sozo in the Greek means to save. Translators hesitate to put your faith has saved you because we don't see her repenting from her sins. And we don't see her praying the sinner's prayer. And we know you must come to Jesus in repentance and faith. But that's not the point of the story. The point is two people desperate with nothing to offer. They come to Jesus. Daughter, your faith has saved you. And then go in peace. This is what Jesus says to those who are forgiven. Peace with God. You've been reconciled. She had a serious problem, but she had a more serious problem. The one who died for us on the cross and didn't withhold his life, how much more, the Bible says, will God take care of our immediate needs? If he didn't spare his own son to save us eternally, how much more then will he give us the things that we need here on earth? And it's important that we point out here that not everyone gets physically saved in this way. If you've ever been taught that the reason you have not been healed physically is you don't have enough faith, you've been lied to. And the compassion of Christ has been maligned. Lack of healing does not always indicate lack of faith. It is a cruel, cruel perversion 
of the scriptures. God will heal physically whom and when he decides to heal. And we pray for people because God heals. And I have seen miracles occur. But they don't happen every time we pray. But every time a humble sinner asks Jesus to heal them spiritually and forgive them, Jesus turns no one away. Everyone can be healed spiritually today. Everyone. At the end of the service, we'll invite people to come forward. If you need physical healing, we will pray for your physical healing. If you need spiritual healing even more, we'd love to pray for that. You see, the point of the story is that though we are all physically dying, we're already spiritually dead. We come into this world dead in our trespasses and sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. Ever wondered why everybody dies? Because everybody's a sinner. Everybody dies because everybody is a sinner. Ephesians 2.1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We're all the walking dead. Long before all these zombie movies became popular. Ever since Adam and Eve, the world's been filled with the walking dead. Oh, we all look alive. Some of you look more alive than others. Wake up. <laughs> but apart from Jesus, we, we are the walking dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. So what about the little girl who, who died? What, what happened to her? Right, the member of the synagogue official's house came and said, your daughter has died. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Could you imagine having to be that messenger? It's too late. Don't bother the teacher anymore. I wonder if Jesus allowed himself to be delayed on purpose. And the reason I wonder this, and you're like, that's a strange thing to wonder. I wonder this because Jesus will do this in John chapter 11. His friend Lazarus is dying and Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha, come to Jesus and say, Lazarus is dying. Come. And the text says, and because of his love for them, he waited two days. What? How is that loving? Folks, remember that sometimes when someone's doing something for you that doesn't look loving to you, it may actually be the most loving thing they can do for you or say to you. Jesus waited two days. Why? Well, if he just healed Lazarus from a sickness, sure, that's a great miracle. But even physicians can heal people. We're not to put our eternal faith in physicians. And the doctor said, Amen. <laughs> and so he lets his friends die and he weeps at his tomb because death is sad. And then he raises his friend from the grave. And he tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just, I give resurrection. I am the resurrection. He uses that 
title for God, I am. Ego me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will, even if he dies, live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so I think maybe he let this little girl die so he could raise her from the dead. And so people would ponder more deeply, who is this man that raises people from the dead? Not, oh, cool, another miracle. Another parlor trick. Another thing to be fascinated about. So he gets to the house and he won't allow anyone to go into the room except the mother, the father, and his three closest disciples, Peter, John, and James. And all around the house, they were weeping and lamenting for her. You have to understand back then that they had professional mourners. People who were really good at bawling and crying and lamenting. And it's too bad we don't have that job today because... Uh, we've got a lot of whiners. A lot of people who can cry at the drop of a hat. And Jesus said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. Here's a picture of the world scoffing, mocking Jesus. But these are professional mourners. They know a dead body when they see one. I mean, she died before he got to the house. He still has to walk all the way there. She's been dead for some time now. The world only sees a dead body. Jesus sees potential life where there is death. Death will not get the last laugh in this case. God will not be mocked. Before we revel in the resurrection of Christ, though, we must remember that he came to live so he could first die for us. The one person in history who didn't deserve to die because he was sinless died the most horrifying of all deaths. Not just hanging on a Roman cross, but the wrath of God poured out on him, separated from his father, had never been separated from his father for all eternity. Perfect fellowship with God because he's the sinless one. You brought your kids to church on Easter Sunday, but did you confess your sins with them on Good Friday? If you don't teach them that, then what's the point of Easter? If they don't know and don't hear from you that you are a sinner, how will they ever make any sense of Easter Sunday? Otherwise, it will just become bunnies and chocolate and cavities and tummy aches. And so then... Here's how the scene ends. 
We get an astonishing call, an amazing miracle, and then a baffling command. Here's the astonishing call. Jesus says to the little girl, child, get up. Arise. He says it in Aramaic, talitha kum. And if, if it was anyone else in that situation, the reactions would range from shock and awe to I'm taking this guy out back and I am beating him. That is cruel to tell a dead girl to get up. And yet, just a few months earlier, he told a boy in the middle of his own funeral procession inside his coffin to get up. And he got up. When Jesus tells people to get up, they listen. Even when they're dead. And he's saying to all of us in our spiritual deadness, get up. Put your faith in the risen Christ. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. This is a picture of regeneration. It's a theological term. Regeneration. To be born again. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. Just like we read at the beginning of the service, Jesus' own disciples didn't believe he was actually risen. And he said, do you have any food? And they gave him broiled fish, which I hope was like the good breakfast of the day. Right? Today we'd be like, get me a Carlos donut. I'm real. I eat. And her parents were amazed. I love that word amazed in the Greek. It literally means to stand beside oneself. It's like, like an out-of-body experience. Like, I don't even ha- know how to think about this. I don't have a category for what just happened. Amazed, the w- English word falls short of capturing the scene. And you'd, you'd be beside yourself as well. You'd be so overwhelmed with joy that your daughter was alive and at the same time scared to death. Who is this man? Who is able to do this? And now they're ready to run out and tell everyone this wonderful thing that has happened. And Jesus says the most baffling thing, as he commonly does. He commanded them to tell no one what had happened. They're just supposed to walk out like she was okay. And you know people are going to say, well, I guess she wasn't dead. She was just sick. He must have just splashed some cold water on her face or something. Why would he do such a thing? Think about it. Don't go to the next slide. (laughs) Let the riddle hang there for a minute. I think the, the clue is that everyone was so fascinated with Jesus as the miracle worker... But nobody was putting their faith in him as Lord and Savior. And so he didn't want this to just be one more neat trick. And I think we get a clue in Mark 8. On a different day, after some miracles, he asks the disciples, 
who do you say that I am? You know, he says, who do people say that I am? And they go, oh, some think you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some think you're Elijah the prophet. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them to tell no one. Same, same puzzle. That's the right answer. Why don't we, why aren't we supposed to tell anyone? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we know that after he rose, then he told his disciples, now go and tell the world. Stop being fascinated with the miracle working, working Jesus because then you think, Oh, good, Jesus can fix all my problems. He can fix my finances. He can fix my relationships. He can fix my bursitis. Instead of, he can fix my sin-sick soul. Jesus wanted to be proclaimed to the world as the exalted Lord and Savior, the risen Christ the glorified Christ. That's the point of the story. Yes, he can do what he has promised to do if you put your faith in him because he's able to heal a woman who touches him. He's able to raise a little girl from the dead. He has that kind of power and authority. But I know many people, especially who only come to church on Easter Wonder, I hear about this Jesus every year. Where is he? Where's all the miracles we hear about? How do I know these aren't just stories and legend? And that's your answer. Jesus doesn't want you fascinated with his miracles. He's not some performer or entertainer to excite you. He's God, and he wants your worship and your allegiance. Remember when he came into the city, we preached this last Sunday at the Passover, the whole crowd was cheering, and the text says they were cheering with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. Excited about the miracles. Let's see more miracles. Is he going to do more miracles You almost get the, the sense that they're hoping he'll take requests. And yet after he came into the city, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. And he pronounces judgment over the holy city. And less than 40 years later, General Titus would destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple as judgment for their unbelief. Jesus doesn't want you to be fascinated with him for his miracles. In Luke eleven twenty nine, it says, as the crowds were increasing, so the crowds are getting even bigger. He began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it 
but the sign of Jonah. Right? Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, and then the great fish spit him back out onto land, and the Son of Man was in the belly of the earth for three days, and the ground spit him back out to life. That'll be your sign. That's the only miracle you're getting. You want to see miracles here 2,000 years later? That is the only miracle you're getting. But could there be a better one? Could there be a greater one? And you say, well, I didn't get to see it. My friend, you don't understand just how hard the human heart is, just how stubbornly selfish, self-absorbed, make ourselves into our own God, walking around this world, interpreting things through our own senses, our own sense of right and wrong, our own sense of what we're entitled to. This is how we all live life. And when you come to a place and see one person humble himself or herself at the foot of the cross and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and say, I am done being my own God. You alone are God. That is a miracle. That is a miracle. Only God can change a human heart in that way. And he's been doing it again and again and again and again for thousands of years. And it never gets old. Never gets old. I preach. I counsel. I disciple. I do everything in my power to change a heart. And I can't change a single heart. And time and time again, after all of that, someone in some obscure moment finds Jesus. And I celebrate. And we continue to teach and preach the Word of God because it's what we're commanded to do. And God uses His Word to change hearts. But it never happens on my timetable. It is a miracle. And so I... Endeavor to lead my children to Christ, but I, I, I pray because I know only God can do that. Only God can do that. By the way, if you have children, this is a place you can bring them to Jesus. We won't convert them or save them, but we'll come alongside you as parents and teach them the Word of God and pray for them and set a godly example for them. And God uses all of that to change hearts. We too are a wicked generation. We we were Christian culture at one time and now we're looking for miracles in other places. At the Church of Secular Humanism, also known as the university. I got to meet many miracle workers at UCLA. I went to the physics department. They told me about the miracle worker Stephen Hawking, who convinced me that the universe created itself out of nothing. That's a trick. Then I went to the biology department, and Charles Darwin taught me that there's no designer, that 
matter organized itself into intelligent, loving, singing, worshiping human beings. Then I went to the philosophy department and the miracle worker Friedrich Nietzsche told me there was no truth. I wasn't wise enough to ask him, is that truth? Hey, fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, postmodernism. <laughs> then I ended up in the psychology department and met the miracle worker, Sigmund Freud, who told me there was no morality, no sin, so no problem. And then I met Jesus Christ. The one who created everything out of nothing. And the one who created man in his image. And the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father but through me. And I met a real miracle worker who brought me from death to life. And he's offering the same thing to you this morning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I won't read this whole text, but it's a list of everyone that Christ appeared to in order. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians around AD 55. So all these people are still alive. If it's a lie then there's no way the Bible's getting propagated and the Christian faith is going to explode the way it did. All these people can be interviewed. Cephas, who's Peter, then the 12, and then 500 at one time. And James, and all the apostles, and then finally to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul says, if there's no resurrection of Christ, there's no hope for anyone. That's how important the resurrection is. If there's no resurrected Christ, then you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the thing that the world scoffs at Christianity for. Really, a dead guy came back to life. Come on. Yes. Yes, Christ is risen, so there's hope for all who trust in him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, right, Adam, the first man? By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ was raised first, permanently. Yes, he raised people from the dead. But even the people he raised from the dead in the Bible, guess what? They all died again. The question is, were they raised after they died to eternal life? And then it says, after Christ the first fruits, those who are Christ at his coming. So when he returns, those who are in Christ will rise from the dead. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. There's a final resurrection, 
not just of us as believers, but all creation gets resurrected. No more sin, no more suffering. A new heavens and a new earth. Everything gets resurrected at the end. Paradise restored. Like the lady and the little girl we read about this morning, by faith we can go from death to life. All it takes is faith. Let's read the rest of that Ephesians passage. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. The little girl did no works. The lady with the bleed did no works. The works come after you are saved. Keep reading the passage. We were created to walk in his workmanship, to do the good works he has set aside for us. We are like the desperate little girl and the desperate woman. We have nothing to bring to him. We are destitute, impoverished. We bring him our lives and we say, by faith, heal me, save me from my sins. Make me alive in Christ. Christianity is the only religion where its followers go to the tomb of its leader to make sure it's empty. But it's also the only religion where God has already worked his way to man. Whereas all the other religions, man is trying to work his way to God. He has done all the work on the cross. He said, it is finished. So come to Jesus this morning. Come to Jesus, all you who are heavy burdened and weary from trying to be perfect. Heavy burdened and weary under the weight of sin and guilt, trying to be good enough for God. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He will give you rest this morning for your soul. We've seen this morning two women who were alive but really dead. That is the condition we're all in, alive but dead. Their only hope was Jesus Christ, and now they're both dead but alive. They're not here today. They're dead, but they're alive, I believe. They place their faith in Jesus Christ. They're alive. The old saying is, born once, die twice. If you're only born once, you'll die physically, and then you'll die spiritually. Born twice, die once. If you're born once as a baby, but then born a second time, born again when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you only have to die once. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
We're not putting our hope in a system or in good works. We're putting our hope in a person, and he is alive. He is the risen Christ. And he is setting aside for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It is kept in heaven for us, who by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I hope that is you. If it's not, it can be you today. I'm going to invite everyone to come to Jesus this morning. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, but we'll also be up here, the pastors, to pray for you if you're sick and you want healing or if you're sin sick and you need to confess your sins and receive God's forgiveness or if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. What a day. Easter Sunday could be your born-again day. You won't have trouble remembering your birthday. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you believe this bread represents his body and the grape juice we serve represents his blood shed for you, you're invited to come forward. We're going to take it family style. The leader of your family can offer the bread and the grape juice or if you're uncomfortable with that, Pastor or elder at the table can serve you the Lord's Supper. We teach that the Bible is clear that nothing magical happens to the bread and the grape juice. It's your faith that saves you. It is your faith in Christ that saves you. So it is okay for you to receive the Lord's Supper in this way. So come forward. We'll have... Some music playing in the background, and you're welcome to stay after in fellowship. If not, uh, you're dismissed. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Amen. He is risen. Risen indeed.